Supreme Court has issued a code of conduct, finally laying out formal ethics rules for justices. This comes as many people worry about this uh, controversy surrounding Justice Thomas and the gifts that he took from many influential figures. However, according to CBS legal analyst Thane Rosenbaum, the code is sort of vague. The things that people were concerned about, lavish gifts, uh, expensive vacations that they went on, outside financiers who purchased property that belonged to the justices, uh, paying the tuition of a relative, right? Those are the things that went on, specifically, mostly with Justice Thomas and Alito. None of those things are listed in the code. It doesn't say anything about vacations or gifts. It's really more more broader. It's like, you know, don't do terrible things. <laughs> you know, it's saying, we don't know what, we're not going to lay it out, what it is specifically, and we're not going to even tell you what we think the remedy should be if you violate the code or who would enforce the remedy if there was a remedy. All we're saying is we're in the Supreme Court. Uh, our you know, institutional integrity and public perception is everything. And so be very careful in the people you hang out with and the stuff they do for you. And if they have to do something for you, then you have to recuse yourself, which is a terrible thing to do in our business. Because unlike other federal judges that are bound by codes, those codes are more specific about what they can't do. And when they recuse themselves, guess what, Dave? Someone else is there to replace them. There's a whole, you know, there's a big bench of retired judges for federal judges who go on semi-retirement and they sort of don't do very much. They get some kind of a pension and they're always available for pinch hitting. There's no pinch hitting for the Supreme Court. No. So th- because of that, that's why they're saying don't mess up. Don't do anything that would cause the rest of us or Americans to go, wait a minute. You can't be sitting on a trial involving so-and-so because you have a financial interest in it or a political interest in it. So it was very nonspecific. It really sort of put on paper for the first time that we should be held to some ethical standard. So what do you think? Will the lavish vacations and the interest-free loans continue? Uh, is the Supreme Court saying, okay, we get the message, we won't do it anymore? What happens next? I don't know. You know, uh, the people who had done this were indignant they didn't do anything wrong, right? You know, Justice Thomas said, I didn't do anything wrong. And besides which, when I showed up on the court, I asked my fellow brethren who were older than me, can I go on this trip? And they all said, go. <laughs> he said, what the hell? It's a cool, it's a yacht. Who doesn't want to go on a yacht? Why not do that? So, you know, they were not going, oh my God, I'm really sorry. I hadn't thought about it. They were pretty, you know, unrepentant. They felt like they hadn't done anything wrong. They haven't decided any case differently because of it. In some cases, weren't aware that there was any financial interest in any of the people that they were friends with. Again, it doesn't provide a remedy. It doesn't say we're kicking you off or put or benching you off the bench uh, for a while to sit it out. The Supreme Court has always seen itself as a very high level of integrity and that it, it rises above all the other judges. So it's not surprising that they said those those codes don't apply to us huh. and we don't need a code. So I don't know. I know that Justice Kagan and Barrett both over the summer spoke at different universities and said, you know what, I think it's time that we have a code. I think it's a good idea. But again, what they ended up writing for themselves is so not specific, 
that one could only conclude it has symbolic value uh, and the judges may, you know, second guess some things that they'll do, but there's no prejudice to them if they, you know, if they, in theory, receive a gift that they maybe shouldn't. We're hearing from CBS legal analyst Thane Rosenbaum. He says the justices are having to grapple with this brave new world. Back in the day, no one knew much about the Supreme Court justices, and now we seem to know everything about them. It's only recently, Dave, that anyone knows anything about the justices. For the entire history of our country, we didn't know what they looked like. They didn't. We didn't know their name. We didn't know where they went to school. We could run into them in the grocery store, have no idea. That changed with the Internet, with the pandemic, and with the, the documentary on Ruth Bader Ginsburg. All of, oh, and the Dobbs decision. Remember where people protested outside the houses of some of the judges, specifically Kavanaugh? Uh, and the and the and the Kavanaugh nom, uh, confirmation hearing. This is all recent, where people now know what they look like, they know where they live, they know like what they like to do. So you can see how the the vast history of the America, the Supreme Court justices did whatever they wanted to do about anything, and no one would ever know. Now the scrutiny is different. Okay, so given the Supreme Court is by definition supreme, could a majority of the justices just up and punish one of their own? Not under the code. (laughs) The code doesn't really provide an enforcement mechanism. It doesn't say we will punish you. It doesn't say the American Bar Association will punish you. Again, it doesn't really it doesn't really have teeth. It's just there to say we got the message. The country's watching. If one of us is on a on a cruise, someone's going to have an iPhone and take a picture of a guy, you know, who's a support woman on Supreme Court justice who's sitting at the pool on a yacht. And it may be, you know, a little embarrassing. So don't do it. But it doesn't mean that you ethically can't or or that there's a penalty for doing so. CBS legal analyst Thane Rosenbaum. Thank you, Thane. Anytime, Dave. Thank you. Choke points. Let's go. And today we make highway history. Today is the day that the two most important interstates on the West Coast, the transition from I-90 to I-5, now governed by a cluster of traffic lights. Here's Chris to tell us how it's going. And Dave, uh, you were one of the last ones probably to get through it this morning before they went active. That's right. Because the ramp meters went active at about 6 a.m. And uh, so far, so good. Uh, the backups haven't been bad. Again, most people start using westbound 90 in earnest uh, in the commute you know, next hour. But we'll be watching to see how this thing goes. But there are three ramp meters now that will force all three lanes passing the James and Marion Street off ramps to come to a stop. Then they will filter the cars on the northbound I-5 to better control the flow of traffic. The Washington Department of Transportation's Amy Moreno says it will make things better. Research in both Washington state and nationally has shown that ramp meters create gaps between drivers. Those gaps make it easier for cars to merge and the cars keep moving faster overall. It's sometimes hard for people to see because they see a red light. What they don't realize is they might get where they're going quicker because of the ramp meter. But Moreno expects a learning curve from the drivers because this is a very significant change. She says engineers are watching the congestion in real time and they will make changes in timing if necessary. Those ramp meters are being monitored by staff in our transportation management center. And so they'll be watching them, looking at how they work, looking at how the traffic is responding 
responding to them and they'll be able to respond accordingly. The ramp meters will be active from 6 a.m. each weekday and they will stay active until the evening commute dies down. Whenever that is, there's not going to be a set time in the afternoon. It's going to be based entirely on what the conditions are. Looking at the data, they decided that was the best, best idea. And really, sometimes I think many of us will find there is traffic sometimes in the middle of the day on I-5, unfortunately. So looking at all the data, the, the engineers decide the best modeling showed it was to keep it on throughout the day on I-5. Now, I'll be watching this change all morning. You know, please let us know what you're seeing as you drive through the area. Is it better? Is it worse? Are you seeing a reduction in the late merging and other bad behavior there through the collector distributor lanes? And also, is it better on I-5 northbound, which is ultimately the goal? Uh, the text line? 888-973-5476. Please use voice to text or have your passengers chime in. Let's not break the distracted driving law to tell us what things are doing there today. But yeah, so far, so good. But this is going to be a pretty significant change over the next hour as uh, the lion's share of the commute starts moving through. This is not completely unprecedented. We have a a major, uh, basically forced zipper merge on the Mercer ramp now going uh, out of Seattle Center onto uh, I-5 southbound. So and that works pretty well. I was I was worried with that one, and as I am with this one, that s- people who are used to just screaming around that curve suddenly uh, hitting a backup, it might be a shock. Yeah, and that was my my biggest concern as we go through the morning is you know that there's going to be a sudden stop there, especially in in this early morning transition when they go active and maybe speeds are a little higher, that all of a sudden there's a red light there and there's a car stopped and you're going 60 behind them in an open CD lane. Uh, So far, so good. That hasn't happened this morning. I know a lot of people, like uh, one of our listeners, Dennis, is like, how can you put a red light in the middle of a freeway? I'm like, well, there's uh, some creative hair splitting going on by the Department of Transportation. That's technically a ramp and not a freeway. You've made that point. I'm wondering... I'm not sure many people buy that <laughs> are, are there are there any similar ramp meters in, in other areas of the country to this I, I'm, I, they're pro- I'm sure there must be uh, this is a rather unique situation where you have not only a freeway to freeway but then you also have the downtown exits all using the same lanes so there's a lot going on there which makes it a lot more complicated than maybe just a freeway to freeway but yeah I mean I'm used to like drive I mean I've been driving all over following Tommy and you know in different states I go to. When I go from one freeway to the next, it's a freeway. There are no red lights there. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it's. Uh, we'll see how it goes. But again, next hour and the 8 o'clock hour probably will it kind of tell us what we're going to expect going forward. But, yeah, that's it's, it's a big change. Can I put another drivers. request for them to stripe that no man's land between I-90 and the beginning of the uh, of that transition ramp? Because they, they put nice new striping down as you're approaching the lights, right? But from from that curve near the uh, the uh, old Amazon headquarters, between that and the beginning of that runway striping, there's nothing there. All right, I, I'll, I'll see what I can do. Um, you know, I was able to get cones removed for John Curley, but just yep, by making a phone call, uh, let's see what I can do with uh, with that today. Just just saying. Donald Trump Jr. took the stand yesterday in his father's fraud trial as the defense finally opened its case, and CBS's legal analyst Thane Rosenbaum was watching. Well, you know, he functioned like a one man PR firm. He showed a video of his dad and the properties that he has developed from the early part of his career, from the early uh, 1980s, and really was much of a cheerleader to say that my father has this incredible vision and knack for value in real estate and a knack for turning properties around. And we know what we're doing. 
I mean, the purpose of this was to say, you're calling us a fraudulent organization as if we need to commit fraud in order to succeed. And he's saying, are you kidding? We have some of the most valuable properties in the United States and world. Uh, We do things that other places don't know how to do. And it's really my father's vision. And so he spent more time than, you know, as when he was called for the prosecution, he was there to sort of like deal with financial statements and whether or not the, the men of the Trump organization had, you know, fraudulently manipulated the numbers. Here, he didn't care at all. He wasn't interested at all because his position has been we're too high up in the in the corporate chain to worry about financial statements. We have accountants for that. We have controllers for that. We have outside the CPAs. What we're good at is the development itself. And we don't quibble about the money uh, of the valuations as they evolve. I mean, every every one of us has, you know, checked the box that I have read the user agreement without reading the user agreement. Is that what uh, Don Jr. is saying here? Absolutely. Yeah, they're all saying that. You know, Trump Sr., the, the father, the former president, actually went beyond that. He said, yeah, it's probably the case <laughs> that in some of the cases, the property was actually valued a little more than the accounts. And guess what? In other cases, the property was valued less than, you know, I mean, you know, or in both cases, you know, the one is in could have been higher, could have been lower. And the reason he said that is to say, this is the nature of our business. It's subjective. Um, You know, you can get anybody in there, anyone who put in a new garage in his house is going to assist on a lot more money if he has to sell it. And, you know, who know who's to say that this thing isn't worth and you're talking about a guy who's saying, my properties are not different. The pricing is not a 30,000 swing. Millions can be a swing, right? So what may end up seeing like, wow, you know, you really undervalued the property, overvalued the property. Yeah, that's what happens when you buy big properties. CBS's legal analyst, Thane Rosenbaum. I recognize that. One of the best places to go in Seattle during the cold, dark month of December is Demetrius Jazz Alley in downtown Seattle. At the end of December, Jazz Alley is going to feature Seattle legend Kenny G. And I got the chance to chat with him uh, after having spoken to him. It was about 20 years, I think, since our last interview. And I asked him, what have you been up to <laughs> for the past 20 years? Well, you know, the thing is, I, I just really do the same thing all the time, which is, I wake up in the morning, I practice my saxophone for three hours. I just do that every day. So that's nothing's changed there, you know, and and I go on the road and play shows that hasn't changed. I make albums that hasn't changed. So really, really, I guess the only thing that's changed is I'm 20 years older. (laughs) How does it feel to be uh, walking through a store or riding in an elevator and hearing yourself? You know, it's uh, it's funny when you say elevator, you know, some people might go, oh, I would hate to hear my music in an elevator. But actually, I just like to hear it wherever somebody else wants to play it. I've heard my music in I've heard it played in uh, in elevators, of course, but I've also heard it played like over the loudspeakers in uh, Tenement Square in in China. I've heard it played, you know, anywhere, you know, that I like on a bus, on a train, 
uh, in some remote part of the world and I hear one of my songs come on. It's pretty cool. Uh, I remember once we were flying uh, some Asian air, airlines and they had one of my songs come on the, the loudspeaker, uh, like as people were coming onto the, the airplane. And I kept telling everybody as they walked on, I go, hey, you know, that's my music. <laughs> Are they impressed? Anyway, I thought it was funny. <laughs> so what do you do in, in preparing for uh, for a gig like uh, like Jazz Alley? I mean, I, I, I must admit, I'm shocked that you still practice for three hours a day. You already know how to play the saxophone. You must just love practicing. Well, I do love practicing, but I also really love being really good at something. And and I don't say that with any conceit. It's just, you know, you put the hours in and you're you're probably going to be good at whatever you've put a lot of hours into. So I put a lot of hours into playing the sax and I like being this good. And so the thought of not being this good is something that really like makes me feel super either sad or anxious or fearful. I don't even know what the what the real emotion is, but I just don't ever want to go there. So I, yeah. for me, it's every morning I'm practicing because I want to maintain where I'm at. And, uh, and, but I, but I, but I love the process of it. I actually enjoy doing things that maybe are difficult and over time you can, you know, chip away at it. I kind of, I really like that vibe. So it appeals to me and which is a good thing, you know, it worked out well for me to have this kind of personality and pick a thing like a saxophone, because, you know, if you want to get good at it, you have to work really hard and practice yeah. all the time. And I like doing that. Yeah. That was my downfall as piano player. I could not practice for three hours a day and so alas i had to let it go but uh, this is a sensitive topic but are, are you worried about aging because i mean here i'm 71 now basically all i do is talk and that seems to be pretty you know consistent as you get old uh playing an instrument though the you know the lung control the fingering the speed the coordination do you worry about that yeah yeah i do um you know i'm not that far behind you so um, and not that that's an old number anymore. Like, you know, I think in, in this day and age, you know, 60s and 70s and, and 80s are actually not considered really that old. At least I think so. So, yeah, I do think about it like that. So I'm, you know, and that's another reason to do it every day. I feel like if I do it every day, probably going to be able to do it longer. I mean, at some point, yeah, I don't think the fingers are going to work as fast. Um, the lung capacity probably won't be as strong. And that's going to I'm, I'm telling you, I'm going to be sad as I at, at some point in my aging where I don't play as well as I play at this very moment as I'm talking to you. And that's going to be sad for me. But, you know, all I can do is my best and I'm going to keep trying my best. I'm going to keep working at it as hard as I can, obviously within balance, because, you know, literally I could practice 10 hours a day if I wanted to, but then I'd live a pretty imbalanced life. Yeah, so I have to yeah. find that balance. We're hearing from Kenny G. I didn't realize that. He has sold over 75 million albums. Uh, his holiday album entitled Miracles is also a big seller. And I asked him how he was able to pull that off. You know, I, I believe it all starts with the music. So the music connected with people. And at the same time, I had a really good relationship with Clive Davis and Arista Records back in the 80s. And I was with that record company for 25 plus years. And they did a great job of promoting the music and getting it out there and getting radio to play my music. And it just really was one of those things that just the, the stars lined up and that's just what happened. And uh, Breathless, which was, uh, what, 1992, has gone platinum 12 times? Yeah, in the, in the States, 12 times. I mean, around the world, it's probably 20. Um, and yeah, I know. It's, it's just one of those records that just, 
it just connected. And, and then because of that record, uh, two years later, when I did my my first Christmas record, this is 1994, the record was called Miracles. And, you know, at that point, most artists did not do Christmas records. It was kind of considered corny yeah. to do a Christmas record. You know, they, they, you know, Nat King Cole did his record back in the, what was it, maybe 60s or I don't know exactly, 50s, 60s. And then Elvis did a Christmas record. And they, But after that, it was considered not cool to do one. Yet we decided to do one because I thought the melodies, just like my Lullabies album that's that's just coming out, I thought, you know, these are beautiful melodies. And if I play them very simply and beautifully with great arrangements, I bet it would make a really nice Christmas record because I'm, I haven't heard any really nice Christmas records because what happens is there's a, there's a great song and then there's a weird arrangement of some of some Christmas song, like a some sort of a polka Christmas song or there's a, <laughs> or, or a rock and roll or a big band. And all yeah. I want to hear is a beautiful Christmas record with beautiful melodies. So I made that and, and because of the success of Breathless, uh, the miracles then went on to be the the biggest uh, Christmas record yet. So I'm that, that's what it says. Proud. Number one Christmas record of all time. I thought that was Mariah Carey. Uh, what is it? All I want for Christmas is you. Well, that song is doing really well lately, but in terms of t- total records, record sales, um, no, she's she hasn't beaten me, and I don't think it'll ever happen. There he is. Kenny G holds the holiday records. Wow. So how about that, huh? Kenny throwing the flames at <laughs> Mariah Carey. I like it. Yeah. He's going to be performing at Demetrius Jazz Alley December 27th to December 30th. You can go to jazzalley.com. And uh, his new album is called Innocence, which will be available early next month. So he's uh, still putting them out. What a banger. Kenny G has nothing on you. Yeah. Did you share your songs with him? No, I did not. Okay. (laughs) Your daily dose of kindness now brought to you by Baird. Giving more than what's expected can be hard. But CBS's Steve Hartman has the story that can hopefully inspire all of us to be generous. To 11-year-old Jude Kofi of Aurora, Colorado, this surprise was music to his eyes. Obviously, whoever said the best things come in small packages was never gifted a grand piano. Jude's father, Isaiah. So one day it just shows up at the house? Yes, all for free. Who does that? The answer in a moment. But first, the reason. A couple years ago, Jude's dad heard a noise coming from the basement. There was an old keyboard down there, but no one knew how to play it. Certainly not his autistic son, Jude. Or so he thought. Isaiah then got Jude a larger keyboard to see what more he could do. And boy, could he do. The kid never had a lesson. No one taught him any of this. How do you explain that you're as good as you are? It's a miracle. You think it's a miracle? That's what I prefer. Bill Magnuson prefers that, too. Is he special? He's beyond special. He's Mozart level. It's coming from somewhere beyond. Bill is a piano tuner. He saw a local news story about Jude, heard him play, learned how his parents immigrated from Ghana how they're raising four children and sending money back to Ghana. What resources are left over to help this special little soul? Yours. Yeah. Using an inheritance from his father, Bill bought the piano. 
spent $15,000. He has promised to tune it once a month for the rest of his life. Very nice. And he's even paying for Jude to get professional lessons. The beneficiaries of Bill's boundless generosity. Join us now. Hello, Isaiah. Hello, Jude. Hello. He's always checking on us. We call him, they call us. He's so much in our lives, and uh, we love that. Going to the hospitals, playing for families and kids so that we can use his gift and talent and all that to help people. That is Steve Hartman reporting. And here from the Gian Ursula Show, here he is co-host and Tacoma real estate expert, Scott. (laughs) So it looks like the uh, renter's protection uh, initiative is winning, but barely. It's got 50.4% of the vote. Have we asked you where you stand on this yet? I'm on the fence. You're on the fence. Yeah, this is... Are you a landlord? uh, uh, No, I'm not. This is a very tough, tough one. It's very complex. I really do see both sides with this. I think we all can agree that there should be some type of notice when it comes to increase, extreme increased rent, right? Um, there should be, we do have an understanding about the winter months in eviction, and we do have an understanding about, you know, eviction maybe during the school year. So, yes, I understand that side of it. But I also understand that they are. Two, there's, I mean, there's different types of landlords, right? You ask me if I was a landlord. I'm yeah. not. But if I were, I would probably have maybe, you know, one to three places, right? And then there's somebody, there's the corporate side of things, right? And they're, they're, they're bigger. And what I'm saying is, is this specifically right here is hard on the smaller landlords. And I, I hope everybody can see that because if someone takes advantage of the not getting evicted during the winter months or not getting evicted during the school year, what does that do for a small landlord? Now, the big corporate company, they can, they're fine. Oh, you know what? We'll, we'll get Larry and uh, Lois out of that house at some point. But uh, yes, the winter month, no problem. But meanwhile, if it's a smaller landlord, they're struggling, right? They're, yeah. they're probably on fixed income. This is all they have. So I see both sides. How do you fix it? The same way I keep talking about everything. People need to make more money, right? We always are trying to um, subsidize in other areas and all these other ideas. We haven't tried the I keep going back to the UBI. I know people don't Univers- like that. Universal basic income. Mm-hmm. People Everybody don't, gets something. People don't like that. But you prevent things like this, right? And it's no doubt about it. You have down in the Pierce County area, rent has increased over the last three years over 20%. We know wages has not increased that much, right? Wages are at like 4 or 5%. Mm-hmm. You have groceries, gas, all of the different things that come into play. And this is another thing where I, I just think that smaller landlords will hurt in this situation. So it's, it's, it's a tough one. A lot of the universal basic income studies, too, have shown that it does actually get used for rent, for groceries, for the, that it's a leg up, that it's I know that the the feeling is often, well, I didn't get free money. Why is this person getting free money? It's like, OK, consider yourself lucky. And then if one day you fall on hard times, be glad that that safety net is there. Right. We all sometimes need a little help. You know, I'm glad you brought that up, Colleen, because I know that there are people like, well, I didn't. And I didn't get that help. I had to like work. the college I had to, tuition. Yeah, the, yeah. All this. I had to yeah. work. Let's be crystal clear. 
if people in your community, in your neighborhood, in your area, surrounding area, if they are struggling financially, everybody hurts from yeah. that. We're all paying for it in we, one way or another. We all pay yeah. for it. Yeah. Right? But where, does, where does that quote free money go? It goes to the landlord, right? Right. right. Or it goes to the hospital or it goes to somebody. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I just I just wish that, I mean, like even this topic right here, I could easily, right? I'm not a landlord. I could easily come out against and be like, hey, you know what? These landlords, they, they knew what they were getting into. Mm-hmm. You, you know, But, but I don't because that's not the realistic way of doing things. I, I think that my last thing that I want to say is also when it comes to renting, you know that at the end of your lease, whether it's six months or a year lease, guess what's going to happen at the end of your lease? Your rent's going to go up. I mean, come on now. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know that. I know that. We all but know how that. how much it goes up should be in some way controlled. Yeah. yeah. You know what should be controlled? Them property taxes. <laughs> there you go. That, that too. You know yes. Yeah. There's a whole other see, subject. See y'all. G. Scott with Ursula at 9 a.m. On Tuesdays, we go to New York Times reporter David Farenthold in Washington, D.C. David, good morning. And uh, we'll talk about the Trump defense in his fraud trial at the moment, but I want to ask you about a phenomenon I'm noticing on uh, cable news this morning. Apparently, the Israeli military is going into great trouble to bring journalists through that hospital and show them that there are Hamas fighters and Hamas weapons in that hospital where this pitched fighting has been taking place, where the power has been cut off, and which uh, Israel's critics are saying it's it's being turned uh, into a, a morgue. What's your perception on how this this story is playing in the media? Well, I think that the Israelis recognize this is a major sort of question of public opinion all around the world. What are they doing to this hospital? You know, are they destroying this hospital? You know, on a whim. And I think they're they're going to great lengths to show that there was Hamas fighters in it, underneath it, around it. I, you know, I, I was obviously I'm in any of those visits, so it's hard to evaluate what they're showing. And sometimes you have to sort of depend on them, the Israelis, to interpret, you know, what the, the debris or whatever they say is the proof. Um, but certainly they're mindful of that. I guess I'm glad for that, that they at least seem to be mindful of the public pressure and they're not just going full bore into this hospital. Right. This is being debated in the British har- Parliament this morning. Some uh, some harsh words on uh, what Israel is is uh, doing. And, of course, Israel comes back and says, well, uh, blame it on Hamas. Hamas. They decided to set up a military operation there. From people who are trying to figure out what to uh, believe here, could you just give us a little uh, idea of what the, the, the your newspapers, uh, the New York Times, what the standards are there? What kind of access do their journalists have? Do they have the ability to to verify these claims that Hamas is indeed set up there and that there's there's no other way to root them out than to attack this hospital? We don't really. I mean, I think we're trying as best as we could. We have people embedded with the Israeli military. We have sources we call across Gaza. We, you know, we we do everything we can to try to verify from both. You're talking to both sides and looking for you know using satellite images and other things to try to verify things independently. But in the middle of a war zone, you know, we're, we're talking about what's happening in a tunnel in the middle of a besieged enclave, uh, with you know with people lots of fighting going on all around it. It's really hard for us to verify that independently. So we're doing our best. Um, but in some cases, we, we can only sort of report the competing claims and say what we've done to try to rule out, you know, if anybody's lying. OK, to the New York fraud trial against uh, Donald Trump and his company. The defense has now uh, gotten the chance to present its case. Don Jr. was was testifying. And uh, so what's the gist of Don Jr.'s testimony, David? 
far, it's just been basically that the Trump organization is great and its properties are great and everything they've done has been genius. Mm-hmm. The, the, the real legal thrust of it is to say that basically, you know, Trump's being accused of overvaluing his properties, lying and saying they were worth more than they really were. Trump Jr.'s point of view has been that it's impossible to overvalue these things because they are, they are you know, marvels of architecture and art you know, manage beautifully. Basically, no number could be too high for their value. Um, the judge, you know, remember this, we're talking about an audience of one, the judge. There's no jury in this case. I don't think it's going to make a huge difference to him. He's already, in fact, ruled that Trump committed fraud. Uh, but maybe this is something that they're trying to do is set up an appeal. So the yeah. judges let them go on at quite at length to sort of show, look, I'm not keeping anything out of the record. I'm letting them talk about their properties as much as they want to. Yeah, well, I mean, pr- pretty clear there's going to be an appeal if this goes uh, against Trump. But uh, again, we're trying to figure out what the harm is here. It sounds like the banks weren't harmed because they made money. But we have not. We, have we heard directly from the bankers yet? No, I assume that the, that the Trump or people are going to try to put some of them on. Remember that this is a really important part of this case. So Trump's argument is, look, you know, I got you know, the information I'm being accused of giving out fraudulently. I gave these banks. They gave me loans. I paid back the loans. They got their money. So who's harmed? But the argument that the attorney general is making and that the, the judge has agreed with is that it's not just a question of whether Trump paid back the loans. It's a question of whether the loans he got were too on too good of terms. So if in the beginning, when he got these loans from Deutsche Bank and others, if he'd been truthful with them and showed them the less exact, less great state of his finances, mm-hmm. he might have still gotten a loan, but he would have gotten it with a higher interest rate. He would have paid more to get that loan. And so it's not just that the, you know, did the banks get paid back or not. It's did the banks get the profit, get the money they should have gotten if they had known the true state of Trump's finances. And that's the basis of the AG's claim is that they didn't, and they were snookered at the beginning, and so then didn't get the profits they, they should have. Okay, but this puts Logista James in the in the position of trying to get public sympathy for giving banks, rich banks, more money, right? <laughs> uh, I don't know if that's how the well. Of course, there's no jury, so it's just the judge that has to be convinced. I can I can see if they're trying to create they, they want to discourage this kind of thing as a precedent for other real estate companies. But really, when a bank takes on a loan. Like Trump says, they have their own appraisers. They have their own accountants. Wouldn't due diligence involve sending the bank's own appraiser to Trump's properties, especially knowing his reputation, to, heck, take out the tape measure and make sure his, his, his gold-leafed apartment is as big as he claims? I think the AG's case is that if you were going to have a state where people can do business, it, it, you, you can't normalize lying to your lenders. Uh-huh. Um, it, it, even if you think the lenders are smart enough to know when you're lying to them and are shady enough to take, a, take on a deal with somebody they know to be lying to them, that you can't normalize the process. You can't legalize the process of telling the banks something that you know to be false. And it, remember, in this case, we're not talking about Trump's opinion. He's, you know, he's not just a case where he's like, well, I think this property is worth $5 billion, and really it's only worth $2 billion according to somebody else's opinion. These are cases where Trump lied about specific facts, provable facts, how many of the apartments were rent-controlled, oh. how big was a particular building or a unit, You know, did he have permission to build on certain lots, or had he already been barred from building on those lots? So you're saying he if he was only those. talking about the, the uh, intangible value of the Trump name, that'd be something else, but he's actually fudging things like measurements, which have hard numbers involved. Yeah, and legal permissions. You know, what what could he legally, you know, what could a, a, he legally do with this property? Can he build a house on it, or does he have to yeah. leave it as a forest? Uh, and if you lie about that, I mean, th- those are the things that the that the 
the lender might use to make their appraisal. You can't lie about the basic facts that, you know, about your property and expect that everyone will excuse it. New York Times reporter David Farenthold. David, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to the show's podcast. We're happy you're here. And you can keep up with the show and find some of the stories from today online at MyNorthwest.com.